everybody. Welcome back. This is week 21 of Creative Come Follow Me for the New Testament. This week, we're back in the Synoptic Gospels and the Pearl of Great Price because we get to study the Olivet Discourse. So this is the last of the Savior's big discourses in his ministry. It's not to a big group at the temple anymore. This is to a very small group, and he's on the Mount of Olives. So if you haven't been to Israel before, this is a ridge that runs along a little bit of the east side of Jerusalem. So you can sit on it and look at this glorious, glistening city. You can see, or you would have at his time, seen Herod's temple just shining in the sun. And that's where he's going to teach about his coming. In fact, most of this week's study is going to be focused on what he alluded to last week. So remember how he was teaching the apostles and the disciples how soon there would be no stone left on top of another. You know, they're looking at this great, big, beautiful, fortress-like city, and they can't even wrap their heads around how that's possible, that this whole temple could be taken down in their lifetimes. And then he's going to expand it this week by helping them say, like, if that seems hard to believe, let me tell you about what's going to happen before I come again. And then he starts to talk about the, the signs leading up to the second coming. One of the things I would say is, it's tricky to study the second coming because especially with kids, it can fill them with fear and apprehension. But you guys, I actually think we're really good at this. I think you have a lot of experience in this area. I always compare it in my mind to 4th of July. So when I'm going to take my kids to a 4th of July fireworks display, I know it's going to be a bit jarring. You know, it happens really late, way past their bedtimes. It's something that happens in the dark. There's big crowds, there's big booming sounds, and it, you never know when it's going to start. It feels like the second coming to me because the whole reason I expose my kids to all those hard things is because the fireworks are worth it. You know, like this is something they won't see like this in any other place. It only just happens this one time a year. So we, we endure all the darkness and the late and the wondering when it's going to start so that we can rejoice when those fireworks begin. That's how I feel about the second coming, you guys. I think when the Savior teaches about his coming, he does take time to say, hey, there's going to be some hard things that are going to happen beforehand, but the fireworks, you know, it's so worth it. So just like when I would take my kids to fireworks displays, because I know about all those hard things that are coming, I prepare. I did a whole Studio 5 segment on this once where I talked about how I hide glow sticks in their snacks because I know it's going to be dark. I would put earplugs in our, you know, diaper bags so that any babies or toddlers, I could put earplugs in their ears and buffer them from the sound. I, you know, we had games that we would play so that as the, we wait for the fireworks to start, even if they started much later than we thought they would, the kids would be entertained and prepared. That same guidance is what he's teaching you today. He's saying, yes, there will be hard things, and I promise it's worth it. Here are ways you can prepare. He's going to teach you that in a few different ways. First, he's going to teach us in parables. So you're going to see him talk about preparation with the 10 virgins, with the parable of the talents, even the warnings about dividing up the sheep and the goats. He's also going to teach us with prophecies. He's going to talk about specifics about what to watch for so that we can see the signs. And in the same way on the 4th of July, how you get, you can get a feel when those fireworks are about to start. He'll talk about some of those signs and what to watch for. And then lastly, I think he teaches us about immunities. One of the things the Savior does is he basically gives us spiritual earplugs. You know, he helps us find ways to go through the darkness and the crowds and the, the late night setting with some comfort. And he does that by following his gospel principles. When we keep his commandments, when we do the things he outlines in these chapters, we'll be able to go through those last days with some insulation, some immunity from the effects that are of the commotion in the world. And it's just beautiful doctrine. So I really think this is a great week to study. So grab your scriptures, grab your notes. There's a bunch of stuff to cover. So let's get started. We're going to begin this week's study in the Pearl of Great Price. So you're going to go to Joseph Smith Matthew. Most of the time when we have Joseph Smith translations, it's these little tiny additions that you find nestled into your footnotes. When it comes to Matthew 24, the entire chapter got reworked. Not just reworked as in rearranged, but also a lot of additional light and knowledge comes through Joseph Smith. We have 500 more words in the Joseph Smith Matthew version than we do in Matthew 24. And it's um, really helpful to study them sort of side by side, which is hard if you're in a quad. So I reached out to Courtney Casper, the one who makes the wide margin scriptures that I love, you know, those spiral bound ones that I've shown you. I asked her if there was any way 
I could get just that chapter. <laughs> like I just wanted that chapter out of the Pearl of Great Price so that I could add it into my New Testament and study them side by side. So thankfully, Courtney, who always shares, gave me that and she's giving it to you guys as well. So if you're in the course, go under the Insights video or under the Creative video and you can find a wide margin version of Joseph Smith Matthew so that you can scribble and print out as many copies as you need to study as a family. I would also tell you that at the very end of Joseph Smith Matthew, there's a lot of white space at the very last page. So I added in there a bunch of the details about how we got Joseph Smith Matthew. Some of the background, it, it links in with Doctrine and Covenants 45 when Joseph was seeking understanding about the second coming. And he was in the middle of translating things from the Old Testament and had been working on that and gets big direction from the Lord to go and translate the new. That if he wants more understanding about the second coming, he needs to go translate the new. So what you have to love about Joseph is the very next day he goes and he starts that translation process. He kicks off with Matthew 1 and seeks for direction. And if you, in fact, if you go in Doctrine and Covenants 45, you can get what I would call the director's cut of this discourse. You get a lot of it here in Joseph with Matthew, but you get it even richer in Doctrine and Covenants 45. So if you're looking to study a lot this week, you'll want to head to DNC 45. If you're in the course, you can always go back to the Doctrine and Covenants course and just re-listen to that half an hour, and it'll help you understand even more what he's trying to teach about. Essentially, what you find in Joseph Smith Matthew is um, his answer to two big questions. So when the apostles hear him talk about his second coming and hear him talk about the destruction of Jerusalem, their question to him privately is, when is this going to happen? Both of these events, when are they going to happen? So if you look in verse 4, it says, And Jesus left them and went on the Mount of Olives. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us when these things will be done, which thou hast said, concerning the destruction of the temple and of the Jews. And what is the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world, or the destruction of the wicked, which is the end of the world? They're trying to piece all this together. They're trying to grow line upon line. And so they asked the Savior privately, Help us understand when, which I feel like is exactly the question that all of us want to know about the second coming. When? When will it happen? And interestingly, the Savior's answer has nothing to do with when and has a lot to do with why. So if you look in the following verses, so between about 5 and 21, this is when he's going to answer questions about the destruction of Jerusalem. And then that second half of Joseph Smith Matthew is going to be focused on the second coming. And that's something that's unique to the Joseph Smith Matthew account. When you look at it in Matthew 24, those answers are kind of murky. You know, like they're mixed in, almost like puzzle pieces that have been scattered around. Joseph Smith was able to take all those puzzle pieces and arrange them in a way that was a little more cohesive. So this first patch of verses is all about the destruction that will happen in Jerusalem. So he talks about why this destruction will happen. So if you look in the verses, you can see in 5 and 6, a big reason why things will fall apart fast is because there are false Christs who will come. False Christs, false prophets who will come and will teach something other than what is true. There is only one Savior. There is only one Messiah. But after his death and ascension, others will come with the assumption that they are going to be the Messiah that's going to save Israel. Remember, a lot of the Jews who didn't believe in Jesus started to look for a Savior who would save them from their oppressors. And many military leader guys took on that role. They just aren't going to be successful. And that's going to lead to the downfall of Jerusalem in a big way. That's why Rome, under Titus, he comes in and he just demolishes the city. There literally is no stone of the temple left on top of another. So that's one of the reasons things are going to fall apart fast. He also talks about what happens in 7 and 8. Remember, he's speaking to his apostles on the Mount of Olives. And in 7, he says, then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted and shall kill you and you shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. And then shall many be offended and shall betray one another and shall hate one another. Another big reason the destruction of Jerusalem happens is because they kill the apostles. You can go in the notes and find out specifics about when the apostles died and how. But it's this, you know, he tried to bless them with light and knowledge that would last beyond when he could stay. And when they take out that light and knowledge, they're left in darkness. And that word offense, remember we studied that before, it just means to cause stumbling. So you can see that there are not just false Christs and false prophets, but when you take truth away, people stumble and apostasy results. And that's going to cause the destruction of Jerusalem. And then a big one is in 10. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of men shall wax cold. When sin, when truth goes, 
sin grows because Satan increases in power. And when Satan increases in power, men's hearts change. They get defensive. You know, you see this in the Book of Mormon too. Remember that part where they're like, they can't set a tool down because it becomes slippery and they're gone. Like they don't trust each other. And there's this like, they turn in. All of the gospel message is about turning out, serving, ministering, helping, lifting. And when we retreat in and just hold on to our own, we lose that light. And that's going to cause the destruction of Jerusalem. What I love is the immunity he offers. Basically, he gives them two ideas for how they can be immune. This prophecy is going to happen. These hard times will absolutely come. And what he's saying is there's some ways that you can cushion yourselves from the darkness that's around you. The first one is an 11. But he that remaineth steadfast is not overcome. The same shall be saved. Even though these apostles who are listening, many of them will die most by crucifixion and some by some other horrific means, it will appear as though they have lost. But if they remain steadfast in their testimony for as long as they get to be on this earth, they will not be overcome. Other people might see it that way. The same way I think King Noah's court thought they got Abinadi, but he is not overcome. His message carried on. There's always these Alma-shaped hearts out there that the message will resonate with. That's what happens with the apostles. It's the very fact that we're studying their words that tells us that their message is continuing. They have not been overcome. So that's immunity one. The second big one that I see is what happens in 12. So he talks about how they're going to see these prophecies of Daniel being fulfilled. Daniel prophesied that there would be these great destructions. Both the destruction of the Jews in Jerusalem and the second coming destruction are part of Daniel's big prophecy. And he invites them to stand in holy places. This is another one. If you go on the Doctrine and Covenants 45, you get a little richer version of this. But he invites them to separate. So if you look in the verses in 12, it says they should go to a holy place. And then in 13, then let them who are in Judea flee into the mountains. He says in the next few verses, like, don't stall, don't delay. When you see the signs or when you hear the warnings from my leaders, you go. You go where they tell you to go. This is actually going to happen. You guys, like the early Christians are going to listen to the apostles, give them this guidance when things start to get really sticky, and they will retreat to a whole nother area in the mountains, and they'll be sort of insulated from all that destruction that occurs in Jerusalem. So where other people are killed or hunted or carried off as slaves, they will have this holy place. And I really love the visual of a holy place being portable. You know, oftentimes we think of standing on holy ground, meaning like, I've got to go to the holy land, or I've got to go a step where the Savior stepped. But holy places are portable. It's where the people of Zion gather. We saw this in the Old Testament with the tabernacle. He, he tried to teach them this, like the holy ground you're creating isn't the ground. It is the fact that you're creating a space where holiness can happen. I love that for my life just because I feel like that's his invitation to me make the places I stand holy, no matter where they are. If I'm standing at my kid's football field on the sidelines, talking to somebody in the crowd, if I'm, you know, at the gym, if I'm in my car, hauling my kids to some event or to school, that's a holy place. That's a place where I can make sacred things happen. So you see just glistening little bits of that doctrine in this one. It also seems like echoes of what we learned in the Doctrine and Covenants about the saints in Joseph Smith's time being directed to go west, to find shelter before the Civil War hits and all that damage, they were directed to head west and find, create a holy place in this untamed wilderness. So you, I just love seeing patterns. Like the Lord has patterns in everything that he does. He also talks about how things are going to get a lot worse before they get better. So he talks about the great tribulations that are coming to the Jews because of those risks because of those choices they made to stone the prophets and to crucify and to turn away, they're going to face great tribulation, is how it's phrased in 18. And that in 19, that it's just the beginning of sorrows. Things are going to get really hard for the Jews for a long, long time. And then he shifts into talking about the second coming. So we're going to go there next. One of my favorite uh, mothering strategies is to keep a mantra in my mind of don't freak out. You know, especially as you parent teenagers and even young adults, I feel like I'm learning. They say some things sometimes and you're just like, Maria, don't freak out. Like They're just learning and they're saying things strangely. Like I just think 
that's what's happening with the Savior. He's basically trying to teach them about the days leading up to his second coming and what the world's going to look like. And he's constantly trying to say, like, don't freak out. <laughs> Be not troubled. And you're going to see why. So a lot of the same issues are happening before he comes the second time that were happening before Jerusalem is destroyed. There are false prophets and false Christ. In fact, in these verses, you learn that those false leaders will deceive even the very elect. I think it's really important to understand that when he says false Christ, it's not just a person. It's not a person claiming to be Christ. It's anyone who teaches a doctrine that is different than Christ's doctrine. And that I feel like we see a lot. I don't see a lot of false Christ on Instagram, but I do see a lot of people who teach messages that are to the side of what the Savior teaches. You know, they might take some bits and pieces that are true and then they add in a whole different doctrine that takes you away from the covenant path. That's what I think he's warning about, that our these last days will be filled with false. In fact, I was, I was just at BYU Women's Conference a couple weeks ago, and I was listening to Sherry Dew speak, and she talked about how she she and her assistant were using chat GPT for the first time. And so she, she kind of put her own name in there as if it was going to write a bio about her. And what was interesting is she said the first three or four sentences were actually totally accurate. And then mixed into the middle of chat GPT's answers were falsehoods. Falsehoods that sounded like they could be true, according to her assistant. So things like, I think what she said is chat GPT spit out that she was woman of the year for Time Magazine in like 2003 or something. And her assistant who knows her and knows her story said, you were voted woman of the year by Time Magazine. And Sherry said, no, you know, and she's like, how do you not know this about me? And it was interesting. She was like, but I think it's the way it was set up. It's that you have three or four statements that are perfectly true that makes you wonder about the fourth one. Even if it's a total fabrication, it makes your mind say, well, maybe, you know, and then you can have a fifth one that's even further off and you start to be like, oh, or if you mix in truth and you sandwich falsehood, that's what I think is going to happen in these last days. I think it's going to be really hard to tell what is real and what is not. That's why the very elect are going to be deceived. What I think is beautiful is that President Nelson's big focus has been how to get immunity from that kind of deception. And that's by having the Holy Ghost with you. When you can hear him, he will help you know what is real and what is not. The same way we saw with all the antichrists in the Book of Mormon. When Alma was teaching, he knew very clearly what statements were real and what were not when he listened to antichrist. So I just feel like there is precedent for this. It's why we need to focus on hearing him better because the days in which we live will be confusing otherwise, but they don't have to be if we seek truth in the right sources. So he warns about that. He also talks about how we don't need to be troubled. I, I just love it. So if you look in 23, he says, see that you be not troubled for I have told you that I have told you must come to pass, but the end is not yet. Yesterday I was hiking and I was listening to, I just put in second coming in the BYU speeches topics index and then started listening to all the devotionals as I was hiking about the second coming. And there's this beautiful one from Elder Holland that popped up in the first three or four devotionals. And he has this optimism. He basically says, yes, the second coming will be hard. And yes, darkness is looming. Don't let that swallow you. In fact, he gave guidance like, keep having children, keep getting married, do all the good things. Stop letting this be this weight. I feel like that's what it means to be not troubled. It means you get to choose. In fact, there is empowerment that happens when I choose to be optimistic despite my circumstances. When I choose to focus my attention and rivet it on the Savior and his message, I don't need to be troubled. In fact, I can choose not to be troubled. It's empowering doctrine. Then you a little bit further and he talks about where to look for guidance. So if you look in 25, it says, behold, he is not in secret chambers. People are going to say, you've probably already heard this, where people say things like, well, my next door neighbor is President Nelson's second secretary. And she said that he said, you know, like you're going to hear these little whisperings, you know, about people who think they know when the second coming is coming. And what this promises is that there are no secret chambers. When if you think about the parable of the 10 virgins that we're going to talk about here in just a minute, there will be a cry that goes out and everybody can hear it. That's the promise. It will not be in some secret setting. And so then he talks about what that's going to look like in 26. For as the light of the morning cometh out of the east and shineth even unto the west and covereth the whole earth, so shall also the coming of the son of man be. This will be a, a light that is visible no matter where you are. 
even though his first touchdown of his foot will happen on the Mount of Olives, it will be visible everywhere. We just might not acknowledge it or see it, but it will be visible. There are no secret chambers when it comes to the second coming. And that's what he's going to reference in 27. It's this really weird parable about eagles and a carcass. So he's talking about scavenger birds who circle in on a carcass. Some people think this is another way to interpret this word carcass is a building or a structure. Basically what he's trying to say is like the same way you can tell when there is something a deer on the road because you're going to start to see birds swooping. That's what's going to happen in the last days. When there is truth, you're going to see people gather towards it. The gathering will be a great big one. It will be obvious. It will be out in the open. It's not going to be a secret. And so he uses that metaphor to help you understand like you're going to see it. It's going to be really clear. And then when you jump down to 30, he talks about why these things are happening. And it's really familiar with what we just studied about the destruction of Jerusalem. The love of men is going to wax cold. Nations are going to turn against each other and there's going to be destruction. For me, when you get to about 33, it feels like, in fact, at the top of the margin, I wrote, this is the fourth watch of the second coming because things are getting really dark. The sun changes, the stars drop, the moon turns to blood. If you look at the Doctrine and Covenants version, it, like there's a lot of darkness that comes and it sets this velvety dark backdrop drop for the diamond of the second coming that is coming in the next few verses. Because of that darkness, his light will shine even more vibrantly. So we look in the verses, it says, all will be fulfilled. And then in 35, although the days will come that heaven and earth shall pass away, yet my word shall not pass away, but all will be fulfilled. In that moment of darkness and fear, we can trust in his words. What I love about that promise his words aren't just the scriptures that we have printed in front of us. His words are the words of the prophets. His words are personal revelation we've received about what is true and what will last. Those can never be taken away. No matter how much commotion is in the world, his words are permanent and fixed and we can rest on them. So that, that definitive permanence is what sets the stage for what's coming in 36. And as I said before, after the tribulation of those days, and the powers of heaven shall be shaken, and then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in clouds of heaven with power and with great glory. And then 37, he gives you another dose of immunity. And whoso treasures up my word shall not be deceived, for the Son of Man shall come, and he shall send his angels before him with the great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together from the remainder of his elect, from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Those who treasure his words, the words of the scriptures, the words of the prophets in our day, and personal revelation will see the signs. They'll know where to go, and they'll recognize his light. That's immunity. And then he teaches about the parable of the fig tree. So you look around 38, he basically says, you know how you can see, I mean, we just got spring where I live. We had winter for way too long. And you're just starting to see the buds on the trees in my town. And so it's just like, you can start to see that, yes, summer is coming. In fact, this year, because we had such a long, hard winter, I feel like I've never appreciated the coming of summer more. It is just this beacon of hope to me to see those little buds on the trees. And that's what he's saying here. He's like, if you can recognize the buds on the trees of a fig tree, you know that summer is coming. That's, it's not a complicated sign to understand. That's the kind of signs we're going to see before his coming. They will be as understandable as buds on a fig tree. So don't think you have to like study deeply or know all the ins and outs. Just trust in the prophet, treasure up the words, and you will know what you need to know. So then he talks about what the state of the world is going to be like. If you look in 42, you can see that life is going to be pretty normal. It's not going to be apocalyptic when the Savior comes. People are still going to be getting married. It's just going to be like in the days of Noah when people were living pretty normally right up until the rain began. That's going to be sort of the same setup. And then he talks about what's going to happen, that there will be this destruction that occurs, that there will be, you know, you'll be in a field and one person will be gone and the other person will stay. It's just this shift. This It almost reminds me of the Avengers movies, you know, the blip when like two people are standing next to each other and one vanishes. That's kind of what he's describing here. And so he talks about what that feels like. And then he says, be ready. That's the message over and over again this week in 48. Therefore, be also ready for in such an hour as ye think not the son of man cometh. 
And then he gives a parable of servants. So he talks about a household where someone has hired servants to keep the house ready. And he's anticipating that no matter what time he pops into the house, the house will be ready. And those servants who are wise are going to continually be doing their job to prepare for him to come. And those who are foolish get comfortable and say, ah, I don't think he's coming anytime soon. And they procrastinate the day of their repentance. So he warns about that. And I think there's some really good guidance in the notes. This is where I started to fill in with a lot of prophetic commentary from prophets and apostles about why we shouldn't wait. One of my favorites was from President Oaks. He was talking about the second coming and he said, essentially, think about it as if he were coming tomorrow. If the second coming was tomorrow, what would you do today? What things would you fix? What prayers would you say? What relationships would you try to remedy? And once you have that list in your mind, go do them today because you just never know whether he comes again or whether your life is cut short, you should do all the things you have been prompted to do today so that you can prepare for when you do see him again. Now that he's told us what is coming, he wants us to feel ready, right? This is when you equip your kids with all the glow sticks and the earplugs and all the supplies to endure through the darkness and anticipate the joyful coming that is his second coming. So that's... Now that the Savior has told them about the commotions that will happen before the fireworks and why the fireworks are worth it to stick around, he's going to teach them how to prepare. This is when he's essentially stuffing our bags with glow sticks and earplugs and snacks and all the things you're going to need to stay during this hard time because it's going to happen later than you think. And he's going to teach it to us in three successive parables. I actually think they build on each other. I think overall the biggest tool that he's offering us for immunity in these latter days is conversion. He wants your heart to be all in. He wants you to be fully converted so that you are ready for whatever the world throws at us. So he's going to begin with the parable of the 10 virgins and talk about the oil of conversion that we can't borrow it from others. Then he teaches us how to build that oil. That's for me the second two parables. One of the ways we build our oil reserve is by using our talents to build up the kingdom of God. Every time you consecrate your time and your talents to help the kingdom of God in some way, by keeping those covenants, you increase your conversion. It deepens in you and you become more firmly planted. The second one is in the parable of the sheep and the goats when he talks about having charity. Hands down, I think one of the fastest ways to deepen our conversion is to show Christ-like charity to others. So he's going to walk you through how to pull that off with the overarching goal being, yes, hard times are coming. Let me show you how to endure. So let's kick things off with the parable of the 10 versions. It's a really familiar story. There's a couple things that I think are worth mentioning. First, I think it's important to understand who these virgins are. So you can read from Elder Bednar and President Oaks and a few others that this is a story about the latter days. In fact, the covenant members of the latter days, it's a parable to teach us to be cautious, that we need to understand our own conversion level and then work to fix it. So he talks about five wise and five foolish. What's interesting about that to me is it's not five righteous and five wicked. All of these people are members of the church hoping to see the bridegroom. They are just either unprepared or prepared. That's what makes them wise or foolish. So some have oil in their lamps and some have oil in their lamps and a vessel of oil off to the side. That's really the key difference. And then a cry goes out at midnight, much later than anyone anticipated. There's a cry that says the bridegroom is coming. Everybody get ready. And so in seven, then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. I think this is really interesting because if your lamp has gone out and you don't have any oil in a vessel, why would you bother trimming your lamp? And I think the reason is because they assumed they could borrow some. You know, I, I think they assumed maybe because of a pattern of how things have gone out in the rest of their life that somebody would take care of them. I think all of us know people like this. You know, sometimes we are this. I think it's also what you see with missionaries when they go out into the field, sometimes there's this moment of panic because they start to lose their light a little bit and they don't have their parents' light at their fingertips anymore. They don't have their seminary teacher's light anymore. And part of that, I think, is because we've coddled our kids during their teen years. You know, when I can see my kids' light flickering, I send them to EFY or I send them to girls' camp or, you know, in the hopes that they will get this, you know, filling up of oil. So I think our kids are used to that, being able to siphon oil from others. And sometimes when they get to this hard spot of, oh, I'm off at college or I'm on a mission, 
all of a sudden they realize, oh, I've got to, I've got to find this for myself. In fact, that's what happens with the virgins as well. So those who are foolish come to the wise and say, give us some of your oil so we can all go. And the answer of course is they can't. They say there won't be enough for all of us. You need to go buy it for yourself. I love that that's how it's phrased in nine, but go ye rather to them that sell and buy for yourselves. When our kids hit that point of panic, when they are seeking oil of conversion and they don't have enough of their own, what we have to do is teach them how to gain their own. I have to direct them to the same source that I got my oil from. My oil comes from daily discipleship, simple things like scripture study and prayer and going to the temple and fulfilling my callings. That's where my oil came from. Go and buy for yourselves. In this parable, there isn't time. So by the time the virgins catch on to this and go, there isn't time. And they get back to the door of where the bride, where the wedding is happening and it's shut. So they knock on the door and when the bridegroom comes, he says to them, you know me not. You know, that's the Joseph Smith version. And it's just this chilling parable because there's five of each. <laughs> In fact, Elder Oaks called it that. He says the arithmetic of this parable is chilling because it's about our day. But what I think is hopeful about it is it's not today. You know, today, if you knocked on the door, that door can be opened and you can come to know him better. We know how to come to know him better. President Nelson talked about the way we come to know God is by making and keeping covenants with him. That binds us to him and helps us know him better. So although this is a chilling parable, I think it's also really hope-filled because it's not today and he's teaching it to us in advance so that we don't need to be troubled. We need to be agile. And that's going to lead you into the next two parables to help you understand how to get that oil of conversion. So we'll go there next. The parable of the talents is pretty similar to the parable of the pounds that we studied last week. It's this idea of there's someone who has a lot of wealth and he distributes it to three of his servants in the hopes that while he's away, they will increase it. And some of them do. So one gets five talents, one gets two, and one gets one. In fact, it helps a little bit to understand what a talent is. You know, it's this enormous amount of money. When I was looking, scholars debate how much a talent is worth, but it is like 10 to 15 years worth of labor. You know, where we were talking about Mary's oil, the spikenard that she applied, and it was worth 300 days of labor. This is 10 to 15 years of labor is one talent. So all of these men were richly blessed with gifts. And then when the Lord of the vineyard comes back later than expected, and he asked them to kind of make an accounting, two of them have done well. So the one who had five has doubled it to 10. The one who had two has doubled it to four. And he gives them the exact same blessing. In fact, I really love what you see in the verses. So if you look in 15, you see that these talents were given according to their several ability. The, the stewardships we have been given are specific to us. In fact, I really love one of the ways you think about that yoke being easy and light. In addition to being yoked with the Savior, it is a yoke that is custom made by the Savior for your specific shoulders. You know, he's the son of a carpenter. He can make a yoke that is custom fit to you. And that's what he's saying here is like, I know who can carry five and I know who can carry two. And all of it is an abundance. Even one talent is an abundance of goodness. The other thing that helps me understand these verses is looking into the Doctrine and Covenants. So if you look in DNC 46, 11 and 12, this is one that talks about gifts and how the good gifts aren't given to every single person, but that they're designed that all might profit thereby. That's what I like to think about when I think about these talents. Instead of thinking them as individual men who have individual talents at their possession, what they are is three men who've been given all these talents collectively. And as they all increase their talents, all will profit thereby. It is the Zion is a community. So that's what he's trying to get them to do. So what's interesting is the two servants who doubled, even though their quantities are vastly different, they both increased. It's kind of like we talked about before how Heavenly Father's judgment phase, you know, when you think about the judgment, it is, there are sheep and there are goats. This is a pass fail. It's either you increased or you didn't, but it doesn't matter how much you increased. They get the exact same blessing. In fact, verbatim, word for word is the exact same. It says, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of the Lord. I think that's what he's trying to tell us. Because sometimes we compare our stewardships and we compare the blessings of others and we forget the weight that comes with it. And we worry. And what he's saying is, take whatever calling I've given you. 
Take whatever allotment I've given you, whether you're married or you're not married, whether you're able to have children or not have children, whether wherever you are in your life, take what I've given you and multiply it, increase it. If you try to increase it and you apply those blessings to benefit the kingdom of God, you will at some point be able to hear the words, well done, that good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. I'm going to make you ruler over many. That's a pretty phenomenal promise. And then he talks about what held the third man back. So the one who just had one talent was afraid of losing it, and he buries it in the earth. It's interesting to think about what he's afraid of. The verses talk about how him he is initially afraid of the Lord, right? He's afraid of the man who gave him this money. He knows he's an austere man that has high expectations, and he's afraid to let him down. So he buries this talent, and he doesn't lose it but he doesn't increase it. But that's not the Lord's goal. When he gives us gifts and talents, even light and knowledge, he expects us to increase it, to to be anxiously engaged and to do good. And so when he comes back for this accounting and he still just has this one talent and returns it back, I mean, I shouldn't hold my hand. I mean, it's a giant amount of money, but when he returns this giant amount of money back to the Lord without increase, then there is sadness in the Lord. In fact, he calls him a slothful servant, wicked and slothful, because he was afraid. He was afraid that he would disappoint God, and he was afraid of men. That's what you get if you look in the Doctrine and Covenants version of this verse, where you learn that he was afraid of men. I think it's interesting, especially when it comes to using our gifts and talents, because lots of us get this fear. You know, it's hard. Sometimes we want to use our gifts and talents in the kingdom of God, but just at church. <laughs> I, don't want, I don't want other people to see my devotion or my faith. I just want to use it at church. I don't really want to take those gifts and talents and apply them to the kingdom of God in the greater sphere. It's tempting to just stay where it's comfortable. And he gave us these talents and gifts so that we could do good and draw all men unto him. And in the process of us giving out, we increase. That's the promise of this parable. As you distribute these gifts and blessings that you've been given, you increase, your conversion deepens. So that's what he says in 28, the one talent that was given to this man is now given to the man who had 10. Not because he needs more wealth, but because he knows what to do with it. He knows how to increase it so that it will benefit everybody in the community. And then in 29, you see the result. For unto everyone that hath shall be given, and he shall have abundance. But from him that hath not shall be taken away even that which he hath. I really like this when you think about light being the gift. A talent representing understanding and testimony. That when we increase that light and we seek to develop our testimony, we have an abundance. But if you stop using it, if you retreat in your testimony, or you try to set it on a shelf to pick it up later, you lose. In fact, this is what... Alma calls the chains of hell, this idea of slowly darkening because we are losing what was given to us. We're so frantic in fear of men that we retreat. And those are the chains of hell. It is not just fire and brimstone. It is the regret we feel for what we could have become. And as we see towards the end of verse 30, the next tool that the Savior is going to give us to deepen our conversion and our immunity is to help us understand charity just a little bit better. So he talks about the parable of the sheep and the goats. And in this one, he is talking about how when he comes again, there will be this division. Those who are the sheep will go on his right and the goats on the left. And then he plays out this parable by talking about what makes them distinct from each other. And the big distinction between them is their, how their hearts feel about charity. Did they serve and take care of their fellow men? I just love it given what we've heard from our prophets and apostles lately. There is such a push to end contention and to show kindness and extend the hand of fellowship to other religions and to other differing viewpoints, try to build bridges. It is this fundamental component of the gospel that we develop a Christ-like charitable heart. So he describes it. He says, for I was hungry and you gave me meat. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. Naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came unto me. And then shall the righteous answer him saying, Lord, when saw we thee and hungered and fed thee or thirsty and gave thee drink? When saw we thee a stranger and took thee in or naked and clothed thee? When did we see the sick and visit them? Like he, they can't understand when they have seen this. I think Sometimes we think the peril of the sheep and the goats is just those first few verses, but I actually think this is, it applies to this part of the parable too, because he's, I think as sheep, they see this 
shepherd who has cared for them and blessed them and sheltered them all their little lives. And he's basically thanking them for taking care of him. And it's hard to wrap your head around how a sheep could possibly take care of or bless a shepherd. You know, it just doesn't fit, which I think fits with who we are compared to who he is, right? But the, the way the parable plays out is he says, let me explain. When you took care of each other, when you as a sheep took care of other sheep, those who were in need, you were blessing me. That's what he promises. Same thing we read from King Benjamin in Mosiah. So he talks about it in 40. And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, inasmuch as you have done it unto the one of the least of these my brethren, ye have done it unto me. He's one, he calls them his brethren. He's not putting himself above anybody, even though he rightly is. He's saying, when you took care of each other, you were taking care of me. I take all of that personally. I saw all of them. In fact, sometimes I wonder if in the next life there will be this, you know, we talked about before, like a big IMAX screen where I can watch all the good deeds of the people I love. You know, those unseen acts of kindness and charity that you just wish you could sit back and watch the life of some of the people that you know are remarkable like this. But one of the things I love is that they don't even recognize that they have been this. The people I think of when I think of what the sheep are going to look like, they don't even recognize the good they do. You know, they they are almost unaware of their compassion and their kindness. It just happens so automatically for them that they're like, when did I do anything? I don't even remember helping you. And it's just this, because it comes out of them so organically, they don't even recognize it. And so I love that piece of it. In fact, I, there was a quote that I read from Marion G. Romney. It's in the notes. But he said, the door of salvation turns on the hinge of loving our neighbors as ourselves. You cannot enter the kingdom of God without having a this kind of heart. And so he's warning about that. In fact, the next part of the parable, he talks about the people on the left. They encountered those same, you know, strangers on the road to Jericho. They, they encountered him in those same situations where they saw someone hungry, they saw someone thirsty, they saw someone in prison, they saw someone sick, and they visited not, they cared not, they stopped not. Like That's the difference between the sheep and the goats, those who will stop and those who will help and those who will pass by. And so he warns about that. He warns about the consequences that will come of it. In 46, he calls it an everlasting punishment. But I think it's important to understand, we learned this a little bit in the Doctrine and Covenants, you can go in the notes and learn more, but everlasting doesn't mean they'll be suffering forever. It's not so much about time as it is the source. He is everlasting. So when he talks about eternal joy or everlasting punishment, it's his nature that he's defining, not necessarily a length of time. Remember, time is a mortal thing. He is an immortal God. And so it's you can't quantify it like that. He's trying to help us understand who he is and that we, by choosing to either be charitable or by choosing to turn away, we get to partake of his everlasting something, either an eternal life like his or an everlasting punishment where we feel the weight of regret that we talked about with the parable of the talents. I think the reason we have Mark 12 this week and not last week is because we're going to study the story of the widow's mite that's at the very end of 12. But I actually think there's something more in this one. I love what you see before it. So you're going to see a lot of the same stories we studied last week about the wicked husbandman and that parable about, you know, he sent many servants and the husbandman killed the servants and then they eventually killed the son so they can get the inheritance. He also talks about, you know, talking to the Sadducees about resurrection and marriage, about talking to the Pharisees and the Herodians about coins. And then he has this part where the scribe comes and asks him about the two great commandments or which is the greatest commandment. I just love the way it's written in Mark because it feels like Abinadi and Alma to me. I, I see this man processing things and you can see the savior trying to fan the flames that are beginning. So basically in 21, it says, and one of the scribes came having heard them reasoning together, perceiving that he had answered them well. This one scribe is seeing that the savior is answering questions that are resonating with his heart and he's intrigued. And so he asked the savior, which is the first commandment of all? Not the greatest, just tell me which is the first. And the savior answers and talks about loving God and loving your neighbor. I just love the way it's phrased. In 30, he says, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, all thy soul, all thy mind, all thy strength. This is the first commandment. It's that all piece, even though that was written in the last one, I just loved it in this one. I circled all those alls because I think that's that's how we have 
conversion when we are all in and we have all those things behind us. That's what he's inviting us to do. And then love thy neighbor as thyself. Here's where the Elma Abinadi piece happens for me. So in 32, you can see that the scribe is getting it. He said, you said it well. It says, well, master, thou hast said the truth for there is one God and there is none other but he. And then in 33, he starts to process this. What's interesting is if you're reading 34, you can tell that he's actually saying this to himself, or at least it says discreetly. So I don't think he's like making a big proclamation to the multitude. I think he's like almost talking to himself or maybe talking to his spouse that's next to him or something like he's processing what the Savior just told him about commandments. And this is what he says, and to love them with all thy heart and with all thy understanding and with all the soul and with all the strength and to love the neighbor as himself is more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. He's starting to get it. He's saying like all that we've been studying and teaching about making sacrifices and burning things on altars. This is more than that. This is richer than that. The rewards are greater with this kind of sacrifice. But he says it discreetly. So in 34, and when Jesus saw that he answered discreetly, he said unto him, thou art not far from the kingdom of God. I just, to me, this is Abinadi catching a glimpse of the Alma-shaped heart in the room. And he's saying like, you can see things catching. And he's like, you are so close. You know, it's almost like you want, you want him to just close the gap. I don't know what happens to the scribe, but I do love that you see this story play out of maybe he became like Alma. Maybe he left this room and this understanding and changed. Then you're going to get to the widow's mite. The reason I like teaching that piece first is sometimes we study the story of the widow's mite and we talk about sacrifice or tithing, but I actually think the story of the widow's mite is an example from the Savior of how to be all in the gospel of Jesus Christ. He just taught about the first great commandment is to love God with all that you have. And then he tells a story about a woman who gives God all that she has. And so I think you have to read those two together. She is the epitome of someone who honors those first and second commandments. So I'm sure you know the story. It plays out. He's at the temple and he draws attention to a widow who comes after others have put in a whole bunch of other money and she puts in these two little mice. I just, here's what I love about it. So when you go to the verses in 41, Jesus sat over against the treasury and beheld how the people cast in their money. The treasury, if you watch the Bible video, you can see that where they put the coins in is this big metal tube, like a vase of sorts. So you'd be able to hear coins. In fact, I love, I think it's in the Bible video, but the guy behind her is like putting them in one at a time so that you can hear all of his donations. I just think there's something about the, the show of it that the Savior is trying to draw attention to. It's how she gave that makes her remarkable, not how much she gave. So in 42, there came a certain poor widow and she threw in two mites, which make a farthing. What I love, and this might be me reading too much into these words, but I love that she threw it in. Like, and this is not a sheepish, I'm going to slide these down the sides of the metal so that nobody hears it. She throws them in. In my mind, I picture her the same way I picture that pioneer woman that Michelle Craig talked about. You remember in conference when she talked, and I think it's Wholehearted is the name of her talk, and she talked about this mud-drenched pioneer woman, and there's a news reporter who sees her and is like, who is this? And how is she like this? I just, that's how I picture her. Because I think what this widow knows, potentially, are her scriptures. And she knows what happens when you put everything in, especially in her shoes. I mean, think of the story of the widow of Zarephath with Elijah. Remember when she has herself and her son, and she only has enough oil and meal to make one more cake. And when Elijah says, make it for me first, she goes all in. She sacrifices herself and potentially even her son, like Abraham Isaac's situation almost, to to offer something to God in the form of his prophet. And I think she knows that story. I think she knows the story of Eve who gave up a life of comfort. You know, she could have stayed comfortably in the Garden of Eden as long as she wanted, but chose to step over this wide chasm of uncertainty and take a harder road. The Old Testament is full of women like this. Sarah was like this when she joined forces with Abraham and they had this hard road. Rebecca, there's so many other. Esther, all of those are women who choose to be resolute and wholehearted. And I think this woman is like them. She is someone who is all in the gospel and she shall give all she has. So in 43, and he called unto him his disciples and said unto them, verily I say unto you that this poor widow hath cast more in than all they which have cast into the treasury. For they all did cast in of their abundance, but she of her want did cast in all that she had, even all her living. That's the invitation. 
be all in. I love the way Elder Uchtdorf said this. He said, they're measuring value not by the effect on the treasury, but on the effect of the heart of the donor. When Eve chose to be all in, when Sarah did, when Ruth did, when all of these great women, the widow of Zarephath, this widow, when they choose to be all in, their heart changes. That's what he's trying to teach us. Remember, that's how we build immunity. This conversion that comes through sacrifice is powerful and it will tether you to your Father in heaven and to the promises that he's made. I love the way it's phrased in Omni. So if you go in Omni 1 verse 26, he's basically saying, put your whole soul in. Make your whole soul an offering to God. And when you do that, you will find abundance. Not in the things that the world measures, but in the things that will hold you steadfast. They will make you immovable in this commotion-filled world. That's the promise. Both Mark 13 and Luke 21 are sort of echoes of what we studied in Joseph Smith Matthew about the Savior's warnings about the signs of the second coming. So I'm not going to teach it all again. There's a few differences here and there that you can go in the notes and learn. But a big one I see in Mark 13 is this warning about what will happen in families. So he talks about families turning against each other in the last days, that fathers will turn against their children and children will disrespect their parents. And I just thought it was interesting because I think the gospel of Jesus Christ, where it's such a family-centered church, I don't just mean like my little family, but I mean family in a big, expansive way. When we live that doctrine, when we try to seal our families together and connect families, it is almost like an immunity to this problem, where the world will struggle and turn against itself in families. The gospel of Jesus Christ creates an immunity to that. It allows us to turn towards each other and to connect each other, and there's a a comfort in that. Another key thing that you see in Mark that you don't see in others is in verse 32. So he talks about how no man knows the day nor the hour, even the angels in heaven and the Savior himself at this point in time don't know when the second coming will occur, which I thought was just fascinating. I'm sure he knows, you know, once he ascends and has a fullness, I'm sure he knows when he's coming again. But at this point in time, according to Mark, even the Savior doesn't know. So he is guiding all of us to watch and to be ready And that's what he says in 36 and 37. Lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping, and what I say unto you, I say unto all, watch. I just, it's the suddenly piece that kind of catches my ear, because sometimes I read these verses and I'm like, but is it sudden? (laughs) You know, because it's been thousands of years, you guys. I remember thinking this in the Doctrine and Covenants when we studied, because Joseph Smith loved talking about the second coming. He loved preparing Zion and getting things ready, and it sounded so close. And what the doctrine teaches is that there is a set time. You can read this in Jesus the Christ. I think it's in the notes where he talks about the timing of the coming of the Son of God is set. as From the very beginning of time, it has been set. And our righteousness won't speed it up and our wickedness won't slow it down. It is set. What we can do is prepare for it. That's why he talks to us about it. It's not that we can like rush the second coming. What he's saying is you can be more ready and have your families more ready to withstand all the commotion if you prepare. So you see that phrase suddenly and you want to read it with an expansive lens. I think it was Elder McConkie that talked about this is not so much about timing, about when the Lord will come suddenly as much as it is how he will come. When he comes, it will come suddenly. It will be in a manner that will surprise many. Luke 21 begins with the story of the widow and her mites, and then it shifts into his warnings about what will happen before the destruction of Jerusalem and that time for the apostles where they are persecuted. So if you look in 12, it says, But before all these shall they lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and into prisons, being brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake. It's 13 and 14 that I really love. And 13 says, And it shall turn to you for a testimony. Settle it therefore in your hearts. I think he's promising that all the adversity they're going to face, as hard as it will be, it will, if they choose it, solidify them. Remember, we're talking about oil of conversion and making our vessels so full of oil that we are prepared for whatever is coming next. And that's what we can do. All the adversities you're facing and all the adversities I'm facing can be something that I choose to let turn me. I love the way it's said in 19, in your patience, possess ye your souls as you choose to endure, endure it well, as the prophets would teach us, you settle things and you develop lasting peace. That's the promise. You know, it's like that 
Maxwell quote that I love that talks about how in the tumbling of being tossed in the surf of circumstance, you, you are being carried forward, even though you're battered and bruised. I just love that visual of settling something in my heart so that no matter how hard things get in this world, I'm, I'm all in. And you see some of that in chapter 21. There's a great talk from, I think it was Elder Yegi, and he talked about how his family has James 1-4 as their theme, that let patience have her perfect worth that ye, perfect work that ye may be entire, wanting nothing. When you choose to endure things well, you choose to come to a wholeness. That's what James was teaching, and that's what you get in Luke as well, that you'll possess your souls as you choose to be all in. When you flip the page, you're going to see some guidance. One of the things I loved is in the JST version of verse 36. So he's talking about watch ye therefore. So he says, watch and pray always. And then the JST adds to keep the commandments that you might be clothed with glory. This wholeness, this perfect brightness that we're hoping for comes as we do all those things. We watch, we pray, we keep the commandments, and we hope. I love that guidance to pray. I think a lot when I was reading through conference, a lot of the messages that I heard about cultivating friendships with those who are different than us involves praying for them. I think you want to pray the way the Savior prayed. Now he's in this last week where you're going to see him pray for all those who are against him, those who despise him and despitefully turn against him. He's going to pray for the Romans who are around him when he's on the cross. That's the kind of prayer I think he's asking us to do when he says, pray always. Pray for your families. Pray for the leaders of this church. Pray for your political leaders and pray for your enemies. Pray for those who despitefully use and persecute you. Because as you do, I think what you do is you evidence what the widow evidenced, that you are all in on this gospel, that you believe that in prayer, you're evidencing your hope that God can change even the hardest heart, that there is there is power in him that we can't wrap our heads around, but that we trust is real. I think that's what it means to pray for your enemies. It says, I have hope that the atonement of Jesus Christ can change anything. If it can change me, it can change anybody else as well. All right, you guys, it's time to take all the things we've been learning and apply it creatively so that hopefully your kids and your classes come eager to learn what you have been learning and are so excited to teach. So I'm going to give you three ideas to just kickstart your brain on how you could teach things this week. But trust me, there are tons more options out there. The first one I'm going to teach you is about how to help your kids understand the signs about the second coming. And one of the things that we learned from the Savior this week is that no man knoweth when this will happen. I think that's important because all of our kids will hear rumors or they'll hear someone do some fancy math and think they know. And what the Savior has said and what his apostles even today have witnessed is that no man knoweth the day nor the hour. So I wanted to come up with a game that helps show you that. And it's a really simple one. You just need cups and water. You're going to need one cup that stays empty and it's going to go in the middle of the game. And then every person who's playing also needs a cup of water. And I'll show you how it plays out. The second one is to help you teach about the parable of the ten virgins. This is a beautiful parable about conversion that helps us understand that we need a backstock. We need to be living a daily life of discipleship so that we can constantly be full of oil and be at rest. That's what I get out of the parable of the ten virgins. When you are, when you are solidly planted in the gospel of Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter if the Savior comes five years from now or 500 years from now. You can live joyfully. So I feel like making a lamp is a great way to teach that. So for this one, you're actually going to make a DIY emergency lamp that is sort of similar to what they talk about in the parable. It's going to be based on oil. So you need any kind of oil. For us, I use simple cooking oil, coconut oil, anything like that will work. Even olive oil works. And then you also need something that is 100% cotton. For me, the fastest and easiest I found was to just get a cotton ball. You just want to make sure on the package that it says 100% cotton. Or if you'd rather, you could get wicks or you could get rope that's 100% cotton. You're just trying to replicate sort of the pieces of what make an oil lamp work and then actually light it up and show your kids what this 10 virgins parable is all about. So I'll walk you through how to pull that off. The third one is to put a big, beautiful spotlight on the widow and her mites. I just love her story. I love that it ties into the two great commandments 
She is a witness of what it looks like to be all in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I wanted some way to help my kids remember her story. So this is the printable this week. It is basically a tithes and offering box. So the idea here is that you'll your kids will have a box where they can store their tithing until they pay it and also keep track of their tithing. So I'll walk you through. There's a tracker sheet inside. I also wanted to give you a way to make the story more real by creating mites. So you're going to use the printable to make these little tiny mites out of dimes and help your kids understand what this offering really looked like and why it was worth so very much. So get a couple dimes and the printable on hand and you're good to go for the third one. Okay, I think that's all the supplies. Let's get started. You guys, I hope you get through this week of study and feel lighter. I hope you look forward with just more brightness of hope. Because that's how I felt after I studied. Despite the fact that we're studying all about the second coming and all the commotion that will happen before, I felt like the bigger message was all about, trust me, the fireworks are going to be worth it. <laughs> Come and endure the darkness and wonder when things are going to start and then just delight to see it all roll forward. I think we live in a time of profound hope and optimism, and we just have to lean in. And you're going to get that as you study the verses. So I hope you enjoy it. If you want to get a little more and you're not in the course, you can join me on the live. You, that's a great place to find me on Monday morning, 10 a.m. I'll talk through some of the insights I didn't fit in and a quick summary of things, and then also talk through the creative in a little bit more detail. So that's a good option for you. If you are in the course and you want to chat with me, put some questions up on the discussion boards, or if you're watching on YouTube, you can leave me a comment there. I'll do my best to answer them as they come in. But I think you're really going to enjoy this week. The object lessons are simple. It's easy to approach it. And the memories that you'll make will be lasting and, and worth it. So enjoy it. And I will, I think you have everything you need. So I will see you guys on Monday. Thanks again for joining me, you guys. If this content is resonating well with you, I hope you'll consider liking and subscribing, leaving a review if you can, and then also popping over to the full course. In the Creative Come Follow Me course, I provide weekly content in full videos. So full videos, the insights, videos of all three object lessons, as well as all the tools you need to support it. So within the course, you'll find professionally designed printables each week. You'll find extensive study notes so that you can go a lot deeper into the text. You'll also find three years of back content. So for since 2020 in the Book of Mormon, I've been creating weekly content and object lessons to help facilitate meaningful, memorable, simple learning. So if those are tools that would help your family or your class, I hope you'll consider subscribing. Head on over to creativecomefollowme.com. You can find sample videos, sample printables, and an option to subscribe for a month and test it out for your family and see if it's a good fit for you. I hope you enjoy it.